You are listening to NTC Messina's podcast, where our desire as a family of God is to simply know God, love one another, and make disciples. We're, in the, we're just kind of started in this series. We launched last week. If you were here last week, uh, my good friends Danny and Jamie Schultz were here, and Danny just kind of brought us a message, a word about praise, about worship. And so we're kind of starting this series about worship. It's been on my heart really since the beginning of the year that I felt we needed to just dive in, have good conversation, really just kind of push and relearn for some of us and for some of us learn for the first time what is worship really all about. So if you come on Sundays, if you've been in church at all in your life, if you're even here today for the first time, you'll recognize that the whole beginning of a church service is music, worship. This time, almost every church around the globe that's Christian starts in this way. It doesn't matter what kind of music, but there's hymns or there's songs. There's this worship attitude that begins. And I wanted to give just a brief background. Why does church look the way it does to us? So you come to church, and it's kind of this format, and different churches put the format in different ways, but you've got a few elements. You've almost always got some place of worship, this music, this singing that happens to remind us of who God is and this worshipful attitude. Then you have a message or, or someone who gives a talk or a sermon or preaches, however you want to put it. And, and then there's usually some sort of time where people have fellowship, right? It's why we even do the few minutes in the middle of the service. We say greet one another and we love that people come before. That's why we put a cafe in because we wanted people to just come and hang and really just get to know each other and be a part of the body together. And so there's these elements that have been a part of the church for a very long time, and I wanted to just kind of give you an idea. This is not just some new idea. Christianity didn't invent the the focus that we have on church or even the, the idea here. It actually comes from Judaism first. And if you go all the way back to the temple, there was there was worship, there was reading of scriptures, and there was fellowship, there was eating, there was breaking of bread. And you see it even kind of translate, you get more closer to the New Testament, and what you see is they used to do that only at the temple in Jerusalem. And then by the time we get to the New Testament, what you see is there's now this synagogue system that's out there. You know, we often give the Pharisees a really bad name, right? In Christianity, we're always like, oh, those darn Pharisees in the Bible. They're so religious. But you know what? The Pharisees were actually the liberal religious leaders of the day. They were the ones that had spent hundreds of years trying to convince the Jewish system that you didn't have to worship God in only one place. Because for them, the temple of God was the only place that God was, and that was in Jerusalem at one location, one place, and that's where everyone had to go to truly worship God. It was on this one mount, right? Mount Zion, the city of Jerusalem. But then... The, the, the Pharisees actually came into the picture at one point, and they kind of shifted their culture of Judaism and said, no, listen, people can worship God where they're at. And so they started the synagogue system, and the synagogue system actually looks very similar to us. I've been to some Messianic congregations. I've even been to some Jewish services, and they do very similar things. They have a time of worship with music. They have a time of reading the Word, the Scriptures, and they have someone who expounds upon them, and then they have a time of fellowship. If you look 
even um, in just the Jewish tradition around Jesus' day, Shabbat. Shabbat was, just means Saturday, if you don't know that, but Shabbat is their holy day. And Shabbat, Saturday for them, begins Friday night at sundown. And so they would prepare a meal all Friday, and the way they would begin, actually, is by just having a meal together. And then on Saturday morning, they would go to this service, this congregational gathering where people, they would sing songs to the Lord. They'd pick psalms from the book of Psalms, and they'd sing it, and then they would read the scripture, and they'd be reminded. So what we're doing today in Christianity is really just a long history of tradition of how we come to worship God. And really, since all the way back we can look into Exodus, that it included worship with song. It included this music. Something intrinsic happens when we sing and when we make music. I think God created it for this very purpose that when we listen to a song, it seems to do something within us. It evokes something within us. And, and sometimes, even in the you know, just secular world, we understand this, that we tend to listen to music that causes us to feel a certain way, right? We'll listen to music maybe... You know, I, I, I remember when I was doing a lot of youth ministry, we'd be with students and one of them would tell me they're breaking up with their girlfriend or they broke up with their girlfriend or the girlfriend left them and they're just sad all the time. And, and I would literally almost always ask them, what are you listening to for music? And they'd show me their playlist. You want to know what it was? Sad music. Over and over and over and over and over. And I'm like, well, you want to know why you continue to feel that way? It's not just because you went through a sad moment. You're now evoking the same emotion over and over. And so music actually does this to us. There's something intrinsic about it. That's the part of what is supposed to happen when we come to worship. You see, when we come and sing songs, it isn't just because we're supposed to do it. It's because it does something within us. It evokes this thing out of us. It reminds us. For me, when I come to worship, I, I'll just put you into my shoes for a minute. So I'm, I'm a pastor, and I spend all week long in this building. And, you know, I teach on the scriptures with our students multiple times a week, and I have meetings about God all week long, and I pray with people all week long. I'm always doing what it would look very spiritual things. So when I come on a Sunday, sometimes it's hard for me. I come in here, and I'm just thinking about all the things that we have to do today. And I'm like, well, I hope they do these songs, and I hope that people, you know, I hope that people actually come because it's nice outside today. And, you know, I, I'm thinking through this thing. But when I come and actually begin to sing, and even in a choice way lift my hands, something happens in me. And every, all of you guys just kind of fade away, just so you know. I stop thinking about you like I should. Because I'm not here just to help create a format for you. I'm here to worship the God of the universe. I'm here to worship this Savior of mine that I've experienced. And so when I come in, in, in this song form, something evokes in me and reminds me of what God has done and who he is and how I should be viewing him. Song is important to us. It has been from the beginning of time. And so I wanted to look today at some scriptures. You know, Danny kind of hit these incredible words last week. Does anybody remember them? I hope you took notes. They were awesome. I was taking notes. I had never heard all of those. I had heard a few of those Hebrew words. I didn't know there was seven before last week. I probably haven't done enough, you know, research and studying on worship before. And I, he went through these, these words about praise and worship. And the, the language there is this. There's this how that we're supposed to worship. 
and he talks about exuberant praise and lifting our hands and kneeling down and and there's this there's this uh, one that means strings and and coming to God with instruments and there's these different elements of how we worship but today I kind of want to hit this why do we worship because you see what can happen with us as humans is we can do the hows really well. In fact, that's what I think when I think the word religion. Religion to me is a system of how. You build this system so that you do something and it's purposeful. Even every religious system that exists, it's a purposeful religious system meant to bring us to a certain place. But sometimes religion can get so rote, we do the how, but we forget the why. And so we come on Sunday, we're good Christians, and we get raised in church maybe, and we just keep going to church our whole lives, and we come on Sunday, and we know they're going to play four songs, and someone's going to pray, and then someone's going to get up and speak, and we just go through this rote practice, and we're doing the how, but something actually has emptied itself of what it's supposed to be doing in the why in us. And we just kind of go through the motions. If, if I think anything's true about Christianity today is that we're really sick and tired of the motions. If I think about young people today, I think they see through the motions so easy and it's just not interesting anymore. I'm not going to do something just because you tell me I'm supposed to. I need to understand the why. What does this do in me? What am I here for? Why am I in this room? Why am I here on a Sunday morning? We have to understand the why if we're ever really able to worship. And so I want to hit some scriptures. I have these, these um, you know, you got your notes, a number of scriptures we're going to hit. But I want to start in John 4, 23. In John 4, 23, there's... Kind of this moment where Jesus talks about worship, and it's really out of an interesting story. This is a story I've spoke on many, many times. This woman at the well moment where Jesus is with a Samaritan woman, and he asks her for a drink of water, and it's all out of context, right? This doesn't make sense for Jews and Samaritans to be talking, let alone a, a man being, you know, asking a woman for water in the middle of the day. There's all this background story to this, and and then you see this moment where Jesus is saying to her, you know, if you knew who I was and you would ask me for water and I'd give you living water, you'd never be thirsty again. And, and she gets intrigued by it, right? And he ends up prophesying over her and tells her, you know, he tells her to go get her husband. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right because you've had five and the man you're living with now isn't your husband. There's this weird, shocking moment where Jesus reveals her deepest hurt. And then like any good person would, she tries to change the subject. <laughs> and so she asks to her what is the most religious debated question she could think of in the moment. And that picks up in John 4. And so she, she this is right here in verse 19. She says, sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So she asks this religious question. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place to worship? While we Samaritans claim it is here on this mountain where our ancestors worshipped. And Jesus replies with this statement. He says, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship while we Jews know all about him for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit 
and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, to those, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So you've got this kind of out of context question this woman asks about where do we worship? Is it on that mountain that the Jews say or is it the one here that the Samaritans say? And Jesus says you're not even asking the right question really. It's not going to matter soon where you worship at all. In fact, he says, all that matters is if you worship in spirit and in truth. And then he says, the Father is looking for those who worship in spirit and in truth. When I hear this statement from Jesus, the only thing I can think of is Jesus is talking about the why. You know, in their day, the biggest question is where? Where do we worship? And Jesus is like, it doesn't actually matter where. Only what matters is what's happening on the inside of you when you do worship. You see, this idea of spirit and truth, it's this of a little bit evasive, slightly vague thought. Like, what does that even mean? And there's this place where we're made up of spirit. We know that. And if we come to Christ... I believe that when we come to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to make a residence within us. We see this in scriptures in John 14. It says the Holy Spirit is sent as our advocate. There's this place where the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And so we have the Spirit of God within us. And so when we come and worship Him in truth, in a place where we're doing it for the right reasons and the right whys, that's all that God is looking for. In fact, that's the most important thing to me. Why are we lifting our hands? Are we doing it just because someone told us to? Or are we doing it because we actually want to acknowledge God publicly? Because we want to lift our hands in adoration. Because I think we could lift our hands all day long. But if something on the inside of us isn't actually doing that in a purposeful reason, I don't think it really matters to God. It's like trying to pick where we worship that matters. It's like Jesus saying, why? It doesn't matter if it's that mountain or this mountain. All that matters is are you doing this in spirit and in truth? Are you doing this in a way that's actually real? Real for you. So when we come in here on Sundays and we sing these songs, there's this place where we have to remember it's no longer about us. It's about God. And so I'm going to push aside all the things that are in life, and I'm going to make it about him. That is the truest way, that we actually put him above everything else. And I've taught this many times in the past, but worship, the the word worship, when it first shows up in the Old Testament, in the Bible, it just simply means this, to bow down. It just means to bow down. And bowing down meant something, though, right? It was a posture of submission to say, listen, I will put myself low and whatever I'm bowing before is above me. And so worship can only happen in a true way when that is the posture of our life and our heart. In fact, I think it's it's funny. We talk about bowing down and this whole idea of submission and worship as in the context of music, but we know it's much broader than that because reality is this. If you come to Jesus and you want his grace from the cross, you want the price he paid for you, you want the gift that's available to you, if you want that, it takes one requirement, to bow down. Now, we don't literally do that here very often. We don't actually come and put our heads on the ground and 
and kneel very often. It's, I don't think it's purposely has to be the physical action of bowing down. But when we come and we pray that prayer of salvation where we say, God, we don't want to do it our way anymore. We want to go your way. Jesus, I repent for doing it my way. And, and, and Romans 9, 10 says this, that he becomes Lord of our life. That literally means that we now submit our lives to him. It literally is an act of worship. So it's pretty much impossible to become a follower of Jesus unless you choose an act of worship in your life. A bowing down submission lifestyle. And when we come and worship on Sunday morning, it's this constant reminder. That's what the song is supposed to evoke in us. Oh yeah, I forgot, this life is not just about me. I'm supposed to submit to you, God. In fact, God, I've been trying to do it all my, my way all week long, and it really probably hasn't fared very well for me. And I'm being reminded right now as we lift these words and we lift these songs up that really if I lift you above everything else in my life, then life is going to be different. It's going to be transformed. It's going to be what you promised. And so there's this why that Jesus is putting into this woman's heart. And, I, and you know, Jesus doesn't talk about worship a lot. This is one of the biggest moments that he makes this statement, that we would worship in spirit and in truth. So I want to run through some scriptures. And this is, I want to hit these kind of places like where do we worship or, or the why of when we worship. And so the first place is Genesis 22. And I'm just going to give you backgrounds on all these scriptures. You can read them later if you want. But I want to give you the background. Genesis 22 is the story of Abraham and Isaac. You see, Isaac is now born, so the promise of God has come true for Abraham and Sarah. They have a son in their old age. Most historians believe that Isaac is around 20 to 22 years old at this time. When God comes and asks this crazy thing, would you sacrifice your son to me? And it's just this wild thought. And we see Abraham, he chooses to step out and say, oh, I'm going to trust God, and he, now he's going to sacrifice the very promise of God, and, and actually Isaac is in an even crazier place because he's 20-some years old, and he's able to make the decision for himself, and he follows his father all the way to the mountain. If you know the story, they get there, and then God gives them this ram in place. It was this kind of test of faith moment where, where you know, would Abraham put his whole faith in God? And I really think it was a test of faith in Isaac because God, Isaac was putting his whole faith in his father. And we get to the scripture and it says, Genesis 22, 5, it says, The boy and I will travel a little further. He's telling the people, we will worship there and then we will come right back. You know, I've, I've often read this story and it, to me it honestly is a mind-bending story. <laughs> it's a hard one actually to wrap my mind around. I think that's an okay thing to struggle with and Christianity, but I see this scripture this week when I was reading, and here's, here's Abraham before they get to the top of the mountain, before God gives them the ram to replace his son, and he says, we'll be right back. Abraham somehow knew they were coming back. You see, even in the midst of him saying yes, I think Abraham knew God enough to know this is not how it's going to end. But I'm going to walk through the steps that God's called me to walk through, and I know he will give me something in the end. He knew that they were both coming back, but he was going there to say, this is an act of worship. There's a place in our life that sometimes God calls us to sacrifice, and that is a place of worship. 
One of the places that I think when we would come to worship God in spirit and truth is in the sacrifice. That even when things are hard, when it doesn't make sense, when God is kind of asking us to put something on the table of our lives, even if it feels like the promise of God, and we're putting this thing up of sacrifice, there's a place where God's saying, even when I ask you to do something that doesn't make sense, are you willing to worship? I think this is one of the most powerful places of worship in our life. For me... The way I view this in my own life right now is I have, many of us know, or you mostly probably all know, I have two special needs kids. And I've prayed thousands of times for them to be healed because I believe in healing. And guess what? They're not healed yet. And so I've struggled with this reality in my life of believing in the promise of God but not seeing it. And I'll tell you, what that did in me was really lead me to a place of disillusionment in God. I was pretty angry with him for a lot of years. In the midst of that, still giving my life to him, choosing obedience, following him, still working here in the church, but honestly disillusioned with God because I couldn't understand. Here, these kids are in my life. You've given me this incredible opportunity to be a dad, but I have two special needs kids, and now it feels like their destiny's thwarted, and I don't understand. Here I am giving my life for you, and, and yet things are hard. I don't understand it. And I had to come to this place. This is the only way I was able to actually reconcile my own heart was where I felt like I had to put them on a place of sacrifice in my life and say, God, even if they never get healed, I will still worship you. I still pray every day that they get healed. But I have to live in this tension of going, even if this promise over my life that I see that God heals never happens over my kids, I will still worship you. And I think that this place of sacrifice and us putting something on the altar of God, saying, God, even if we don't understand this situation, even if this doesn't work the way we thought it was going to, even if this promise never takes place, am I still going to worship you? This is one of the greatest places of worship that we can come to God. In fact, I think we probably all face it in some way or another. We all come to some place in our life where we have to say, okay, God, I'm just going to put this on the table of sacrifice, and I don't know what it means, I don't know what it looks like, but I'm just going to put it back in your hands. That's worship. Psalms 116.7, I will offer you a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. The next place is this, Exodus 15. We worship in victory. There's another place. This is probably the easiest one for us. Exodus 15, you've got Moses and the Israelites, and they've just come out of Egypt, and they've come to the place of the Red Sea, and, and actually they start freaking out because the armies of Egypt are now coming and have decided, we didn't really want to let you go. We're going to take you back as slaves. And so the armies of Egypt are coming, but they're now stuck in this place. The Red Sea's here, and the armies are at their back, and they don't know what to do. And God tells Moses, just lift your staff up. I'll do a miracle, and if you've been in Sunday school ever in your life, you know the story. He parts the Red Sea. This incredible, crazy miracle moment takes place. It literally says that the Israelites walked through on dry ground. That's weird. It wasn't even muddy. 
Like the water moves and God decides to make the ground dry so it's easy. Like this is probably one of the most incredible miracles. And not only that, there's this is like two million people, just remind you. Two million Israelites. I don't like how long did it take? Like two million people don't move very fast. And they're crossing the Red Sea. The Israel the, the Egyptians are on their way, and they're getting across. And as Moses is coming, it literally says that God closes the Red Sea down on the Egyptians. Because they, they're like, well, we're going to cross too. And they get into the Red Sea, and then the Red Sea comes down and swallows up the enemy. This is like an incredible victory from God. They don't even do anything. All they had to do was lift the staff and hold it there for a while. And I wish life was that easy, right? I wish that everything God asked us to do was like that. Hey, just... Just hold up that stick. Do it for a while. I'll even make the ground dry. You won't even get your feet muddy. And then the enemies that are trying to kill you in the process, don't worry, I'll take care of them too. And so they get to the other side, right? And immediately, this is actually the first place in the scriptures where you see a recorded song of worship, Exodus 15. We can turn there real quick. If you have your Bibles, go for it. It'll probably be on the screen behind me. But Exodus 15. So this whole thing happens, they get across, their enemies are swallowed up. And it says, chapter 15, verse 1, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. This is my God, and I will praise him. Like, this is the easy place for us to worship, right? There's the place like the sacrifice. It's like, I don't get it. I don't understand what's happening in life. But God, I'm going to put it in your hands and I'm going to worship you. Then there's the place where we experience a victory. We see God move in an incredible way in our lives. And those are the Sundays that we're like on time. Right? Even though it's sunny out, I'm going to church this Sunday. Because God did something so incredible in my life this week. And we come and it's easy in that moment. I mean, look at the length. If you look in your Bibles, that's a very long song that they write and sing right there. They sing this worship song to him because it was so easy in that moment. And that is a right place that when God does a victory in your life, what are we supposed to react with? Worship. That we come and worship when there's victory in our lives. It's one of the reasons why we come on Sunday, too. I believe we're going to celebrate what has God done in our lives this week. Let's celebrate together. We worship in victory. The next one, 2 Chronicles 20. Here's another story with King Jehoshaphat. I'm not sure I'm saying that right, but it's okay. King Jehoshaphat, he's a king of uh, Judah, not the king of Israel. This is when Israel and Judah were split. There's a lot of history there. And actually, Jehoshaphat doesn't really start out great as a king, um, but some, some situations happen in his life where he starts to tear down all the pagan idols and all the things, and he begins to bring people back to following God. And there's a moment where these armies come out against him, and these people come out against him, and he's fearful, and he's, he's like, God, what do we do? How can we win against these armies? They outnumber us, and and it was real. Like, in the reality of the situation, there was probably no way that they were going to defeat this enemy. But what we see in in chapter 20, 
verse 21, we see this spot, and this is what happens. It says, after consulting the people, so there's this whole moment where God speaks to him, there's a prophet that comes, and then it says, after consulting the people, the king appointed singers to walk ahead of the army, singing to the Lord and praising him for his holy splendor. This is what they sang. Give thanks to the Lord, his faithful love endures forever. At that very moment, they began to sing and give praise. The Lord caused the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir to start fighting amongst themselves. The armies of Moab and Ammon turned against their allies from Mount Seir and killed every one of them. After they had destroyed the army of Seir, they began to attack each other. And the army of Judah arrived at the lookout point. All they saw were dead bodies lying on the ground. So there's this moment where we see this battle that's going to take place. And they really can't win the battle by all standards of just what it looks like. But because of these prophetic words and these moments, King Jehoshaphat, he says he puts the singers out in front. And they decide to praise and worship God. And as soon as they began to, what happens? The enemy turns on themselves. And they win the battle without even swinging a sword. And one of the things that worship does for us, and I think one of the places that we're called to worship, is we worship in the battle. You know, there's a song that we sing at times, and it's kind of a, got a bridge line to it, and it says, this is how we fight our battles. This is where it comes from. Because there's a place that sometimes we come to the end of ourselves, or actually, we, this should happen often, we come to the end of ourselves in our lives, and one of the best places we can turn is worship. And I think that something can happen when we decide to say, God, I don't know how to win this fight. I'm in the midst of a battle in my life in some way. Maybe you've reached a diagnosis or, or something's happening in a relationship and there's a battle happening within you and around you. Probably the best thing you can do in that moment is worship. And I believe, I, I've prayed this over my own life hundreds of times. God, as I sing these words, let my enemy be confused and kill themselves. Not literally. Don't take that too literal. But we're against an enemy that we don't see. It says we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. There's this enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And when we get into a battle, I think one of the greatest places we can do, again, worship, where we bow and submit to God and just say, okay, God, you take over. And God wins the battle for us. We worship in battle. This is one of the truest places that we can worship. God, I can't do this on my own anymore, but I know you can. Psalms 144.1, it says, Praise the Lord who is my rock. He trains my hands for war and gives my fingers skill for battle. God wants to give us something for battle, and worship is that. One more. We worship in suffering. This is a brutal story. 2 Samuel 12.20. If you don't know the story, this is a story where David has an affair with Bathsheba and there's a lot to that situation. He has 
her husband killed out in battle, and then he takes this woman for himself, even without her volition, and he has a child with her, and then he gets confronted by the prophet Nathaniel, and, and he actually repents when Nathaniel confronts him for his wrongdoing, and there's this incredible repentance moment, but in the midst of that, his son is born and is actually ill and sick, and he's, he's crying out to God for his son. But his, seven days later, his son dies. And it says that they were afraid to come and tell him because he was so distraught, they were afraid of what he would do when they told him the bad news of his son's death. But what happens is they come and they finally tell him, and we get to Second Chronicles, or Second Samuel 12, and this is what it says, David got up from the ground, so they announced to him, your son has died. I, I can't even imagine that place. Some of you can Imagine those moments when you lose something so close to you, it just, you don't even feel like you can go on. This is, the, this, is this moment for David. It says, David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle and worshipped the Lord. I think one of the most profound places we can worship God is in the midst of our pain and suffering. That we can bring God worship when it doesn't make sense. You want to read the psalm that David, this is Psalms 9, it's in your notes. Psalms 9 is the psalm that David actually sings. So he goes to the temple and it's recorded in Psalms 9. What does he sing? His son has just died. This is his, his starting words. His son has just died. And his starting words are this, Psalms 9.1. I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all the marvelous things you have done. That doesn't even make sense to me. He, he has this incredible moment of loss, but yet he comes to the tabernacle and he worships with the words, I will tell of the marvelous things you've done. We are called to worship even in the midst of our suffering and pain. And it does something in us. It awakens something in us. It evokes something in us. It actually allows us to see the world in a different way. Worship for me has recentered my mind more times than I can remember. When my mind is getting confused or when it's going off the rails of how I see God or it's going off the rails with how I see the world, when I begin to worship and lift my heart in song and I just say, God, I'm just going to worship you. I don't understand the situation. I don't understand the circumstance. God, I don't even know. But my mind comes back to this place where I remember who God is. I'm reminded of the marvelous things that he has done in my life. These are some of the places, there's so many kind of intangible places in our life that God calls us to worship. These are just a few where I think if we were able to grasp as a people that we're called to worship in sacrifice, in victory, in battle, in suffering, then we can really begin to understand what Jesus was saying in John 4. I'm going to end with this scripture. It says, John 4, 24, The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. See, God is not interested in some geographical location on where you worship. He calls us to gather together. He calls us to this place of corporate worship. And in fact, I would say that something happens in corporate worship that really can't happen in an individual place of worship. 
I think that corporate worship helps us to actually stand and worship God when we don't know how to anymore. When the suffering and the pain and the difficulties are too hard, but we choose to be in this place where others are lifting their hands and worshiping God, maybe out of victory and out of blessing and out of remembrance and all those things, but there's this place where it causes us to worship too. And breakthrough comes and encouragement comes and building up comes. You see, worship is this kind of dichotomy thought to me. We come before God to bow low, submit to Him in every way, to call Him good, exalt Him, but somehow in the process of that, we get blessed. You'd think that worship is really about the one we're worshiping, and it's true, it starts there. But somehow when we actually do that, we get the benefit of it? It doesn't actually make much sense. You, you see, God doesn't really benefit from our songs and praise. He's God. He doesn't really need anything. He has everything he needs. He's provided for in every way. And so our worship, what does that really mean? But it, I think it's because he knew that if we would come with a true heart of worship, laying our lives low, then it actually allows him to pour out the blessing that he has over us. It actually allows him to release the things he has over us. It causes us to no longer be living in our own strength, in our own mindsets, but actually now beginning to live in his strength, in his mindset. This is what worship should do for us. Can we stand this morning? You know, maybe you're in this room and the idea of worship just seems so foreign to you. The idea of giving your life up for someone else or bowing low to someone else, it just seems un-American even, doesn't it? But yet there's this thing in Christianity where God kind of has given us a kingdom that's upside down our normal way of thinking. And so if we come and can somehow bow low to him and worship and exalt him, then he actually lifts us up. That he encourages and builds us up. And so the very thing we come before him to lay down, he blesses us with. And I believe God wants to do that in every one of our lives. And really a life of worship starts with a moment where we just say, Jesus, I want to give my life for you. I want to live a life of worship for you. I want my songs not to just be songs, but actually this exuberant praise where I'm lifting my voice for who you are. And he's drawing every one of us to that place today. So today we're actually going to end with communion and a little bit of worship. And I want to pray for you. And then I'm going to ask you, you can come forward, maybe the folks that are Distributing these can come up to the tables. There's two tables here, and I think there's a couple tables in the back. And I really believe that communion, at its root, was a symbol of worship. You know, Jesus breaks the bread, and he passes the cup, and it symbolizes the, the breaking of his body for us and the blood poured out on the cross for us. It was this idea of of worship, that we did it in remembrance to say, God, we remember what you've done for us and we want to worship you because we want to submit our lives because of it. And I'm going to pray, and this is what I want to pray over you. 
that if you're in this room and and you need to do that for the first time, that you would begin to whisper to God, God, I need you. Jesus, I want your life for me. God, I want to repent. I want to turn from the ways that I've been doing things, and I want to go your way. Father, I want to be able to walk into your kingdom. I want to be a true worshiper. And for the rest of us, that it would be this reminding moment again where we say, Jesus, we don't want to just make religious decisions, a rote decision to show up at church on Sunday and go through the motions. God, we want to be true worshipers of you. So Father, I ask right now that every person in this room, even every person online at home, God, that you would evoke something in our hearts right now. Maybe it's an initial moment where we turn our lives over to you for the first time and say, Jesus, we want to follow you. And God, maybe it's it's us that have followed you but need to be reminded, God, it's not just about some religious rote activity. It's about giving our lives to you every day to be true worshipers of you. So Jesus, as we do this communion moment together, God, we just ask, draw us in closer to you in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to NTC Messina's podcast. We hope you join us next week and have a blessed day.